This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha for Wisdom Tree, sitting in today for Jeremy Schwartz. His co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategy, nor tied to any offer or sale of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. We'll be focusing on global affairs today. First, talking about U.S.-China trade wars, many central bank currency moves, and what that means for the global financial markets and currencies. Second, we're going to talk about the Hong Kong and the protests there and its broad implications for Asian economy and the markets. Before we get to that, let me introduce Professor Siegel for his take on this week's market activity. So much going on, and where should investors pay attention to, Professor? <laughs> well, thank you, Li Chen. Yes, this has certainly been a, a wild week, especially with that 10-year, um, you know, earlier this week, uh, going down to 160, what a, what a shock. It stands at 171 now, but we've broken well below that 2% marker. Um, I was on CNBC uh, yesterday, and uh, I called for the Fed to immediately cut uh, the funds rate by 50 basis points. That's really an aggressive move, but let me, let me tell you why. I mean, first of all, it makes... No sense to me to have the funds rate, which is, I'm looking at the screen, 212, uh, be uh, more than 40 basis points over the 10-year. Uh, if anything, the funds rate should be 40 basis points or more under the 10-year rate if we take the normal set of circumstances that you get uh, compensated for taking a 10-year horizon versus the most liquid asset in the world. Fed funds now at 212 is higher than the interest rate on virtually any bonds of any maturity um, in in the world, uh, so uh, of the developed countries in the world. So I think the Fed has got to lower the rate. Secondly, the economy is really not that strong. Um, the data that we've gotten since the announcement uh, of uh, the second quarter GDP at the end of July now suggests that GDP, instead of growing at 2.1%, is growing at about 1.8, under 2. And all the estimates that I get right now, now we're only halfway through the quarter, but are looking under 2. I did not think the employment report last Friday was at all strong. I thought it showed a lot of weakness, particularly in the hours worked. Um, um, it, It was disappointing with downward revisions. Now, I'm not saying we're going into a, a recession. Uh, but I think we are going into a meaningful economic slowdown. 
And what I worry most about is, of course, the trade effect. Don't forget, all this data we're seeing is before Trump set these 10 percent tariffs to take place on September 1st and threatens the the full 25 percent. What is that going to do? To business sentiment, investment is already weak. Second quarter in, uh, investment was very weak, but you know, and and I don't expect it to be much stronger here in the third quarter. Uh, another reason why I thought the Fed should be aggressive um, is a tactical reason. Uh, if the Fed lowers by 50 basis points, where I think where the Fed funds rate really should be around 160 right now. Uh, it will take off the table one of uh, Trump's main uh, scapegoats for why the economy isn't doing as well as it did last year. Um, you know, blaming blaming the Fed, blaming uh, Chairman Powell. Uh, so if he goes to that compliment, says, "Here, listen, I'm going to give you this 50. We think it should be here," then all the slowdown is Trump. It's because of the potential on the trade war. I think this is an ultimate losing issue, um, and I believe that Trump will be forced to buy a deal that is much less than what he hopes to get at the present time, because I think this is going to have, uh, if he continues on this path, very negative economic effects. And uh, in my opinion, the only way Trump can win next year is by having a good economy. Um, uh, he's had a good economy and a good stock market because if you look at the polls, if you look at the questionnaires, uh, that's the only factor that Americans voters now rate him positive on uh, is the economy. So he cannot lose the economy. I think he is going to realize that. He will be impressed on that by his advisors, and I expect that later this year, either put off any imposition of further tariffs or will come to some sort of a deal. But, uh, you know, nothing is a sure thing, but I, I believe that happened. If it does happen, we're going to get a nice pop in the stock market, uh, probably 10 to 15 percent. If it doesn't happen and he continues down this trade, I see downward markets going forward. Thank you, Professor. Actually, I want to follow up on your comments that the short-term rate right now is higher than almost all the bonds in the world. Yeah, um, in developed, developed countries. In not, developed you know. countries, yes. Yeah. Um, um, the, the question is, um, do you believe that, do you think those uh, negative uh, rates is going to help uh, in terms of economy? Uh, and, you know, not... Lower, you mean lowering the short rate? Not not in the U.S., like the negative rates in happening in Europe. Oh. Well, they're better than positive rates. I mean, you know, there's there's more and more evidence. I mean, actually, it's, uh, PIMCO came out with um, uh, a, a statement earlier this week, which I've been saying for a long time, that don't blame central banks for the negative rates. We are witnessing powerful demographic factors uh, in the, uh, in the developed world, the aging of the population in particular is having a tremendous downward force on real interest rates and nominal interest rates around the world. I mean, we people need to save. They're more risk-averse. Older people are more risk-averse. They're willing to put more and they're wanting to put more of their assets in bonds. And this tremendous demand for that uh, uh, saving vehicle is the major factor driving down the rates, really, 
central banks around the world are just following the rates. And my feeling is if they resist them and try to say, oh, let's go back to the normal rates of 1%, 2 3 4%, uh, they'll precipitate a recession. So we have to realize that we are now uh, interest rates around the world over the last 20 years. And it, didn't, it really started around 1990, 95, 2000, a Downward look, 2000 was the peak of the real interest rates in the United States, 4.5%. And as we know, the 10-year now on real rates is down to zero. But this has gone on everywhere in the world, in Japan, in Europe, in the United States. So my feeling is I like the fact that central banks are finally acceding to the fact, yes, we do live in a different world. I, I think actually the resistance is higher in the United States. And one reason why I think the funds rate is, is is really too high, and uh, given the outlook and the potential trade war, um, I think the Fed should be um, proactive in terms of um, you know setting a uh, an accommodative stage for monetary policy. Um, on the other hand, do you think this might um, play into a little bit pressuring the Fed to yeah. act? I mean, that's the one thing. It will look like he's caving in. To Trump, who's you know uh, done that, but um, uh, and I think that that's unfortunate because I do think there's really good economic grounds for lowering the rate now. When we no, one thing is very important. When Powell and the FOMC set the rate up at uh, you know uh, between two and a quarter and two and a half in December of last year. Our 10-year rate was well over 3% and thought to go higher. Mm-hmm. We are half the level of what the 10-year rate. Had the Fed known back then in December that no one could have, it's been the biggest shock in the market. I mean, you would ask me, oh, Jeremy, what's the probability that the 10-year by July and August is going to be 160? I said, that's out of your mind. It can't be that low. But if they would have known how low the 10-year rate was going, they would have never pushed up the short-term rate too high. I, you know, I'm not totally blaming them at that time for where they did it, although there were problems with the statement, et cetera, that they had to backtrack on. But I think they've got to look at the new reality of the rates, and our rate structure is just dramatically lower than it was in the past. Thank you, Professor. Uh, well, thank have you a, very much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Um, Thank you so much. And our first guest is Mark Chandler, who is Chief Market Strategist at Bandenberg Global Forex. He writes a widely followed blog called Mark to Market, Mark as in M-A-R-C. He's been a guest on the show before, and it's good to have him back. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Let's follow up on Professor's comment on those uh, negative um, uh, rated bonds. I think last time we see there are 140 billion dollars on it. What's those? Do you, what's your view on those? Well, yeah. So this week we got up to I think it's 15 trillion dollars of negative yielding bonds. I know Professor Siegel blames it on uh, the demographics, and I don't know. I just don't. In my work, I just don't see the demographic story lining up well with the negative interest rates. And I think that those countries that have negative interest rates, especially basically the eurozone. Uh, countries around the Eurozone and Japan. And these countries didn't have negative interest rates until the central bank brought their deposit rate below negative, below zero, I should say. 
And so I, I, in my work, I think that these negative interest rates are a, a great experiment. And I think what, what Keynes called it was the death, the euthanasia of the rentier class, people who live on, by clipping bond coupons. And these are not only sovereign bonds right now. These are corporate bonds also in Europe. That have negative yielding and negative yields associated with them. So, who are buying these bonds? I mean, maybe I should look at my own portfolio. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good question. So, why would why would anybody buy these negative yielding bonds? A couple of reasons why. If the German Bund yield was yielding minus twenty basis points in the beginning of this year, if it's yielding minus say fifty five now, that's just capital appreciation. The bond just continues to go higher in price. So, even though uh, so so one is you forgo the capital gains. And who is buying these bonds? But indexers. People who have to, uh, they have an index, they get passive income, passive money, like 401k money, invest in a global bond fund. That's Where why, is the global yeah. bond fund going to invest in? I know. So one is because of the index, passive investing. Secondly, if you don't buy these negative yielding bonds and they continue, the yields continue to fall, you're missing on these capital gains, which means your fund will underperform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's why I think personally I'm not a huge fan of index funds because index can be, you know, not not necessarily well constructed. Um, so with so many central banks moves this past week, uh, you know, India, New Zealand, um, how should investors think about currency return risk in their portfolios? Like, how do you manage your own portfolio's currency exposure? Yeah, so I, I think that it's really it's, it's difficult for individuals. I think even though there are some uh, like uh, like the Wisdom Tree funds that have you can buy the uh, say a small cap Japanese fund that hedges out the currency risk for you, or a large cap, or buy a basket of European exporters. But these products uh, appeal to some people. I think that oftentimes when we invest overseas, we want to get the currency exposure. For example, because of the various volatilities. If, if you have a basket of international stocks, the currency could be uh, could be a third of your total return. If you have a basket of bonds, it could be just a variability. The currency could be two-thirds of your return. So typically, I think people, when we invest overseas, we want to take that foreign currency exposure because that helps us reach this, like, uh, the optimal frontier, if you will, for the portfolio. Um, so in terms of um, currency hedging that you mentioned, um what kinds of strategies, you know, should you use? Them? Fully hedged, dynamic hedged, any kind of strategies that you know you you see any potential in this kind of environment? Well, I think that it's, it's, it's just the question really. I think is that the challenge. I think is that uh, even if you, you you have to take a view, where if you buy a foreign stock or you buy a foreign bond, or I work with a lot of companies that maybe order products, intermediate goods or finished goods from overseas. Uh, and so, so then they want to hedge the currency in a disciplined way, like hedge, like as soon as they send out an invoice, we suggest they hedge, uh, hedge loan exposures or hedge 70% of anticipated sales or something like that. But for individuals, it's a different story. And I think that we want to like just think about how the uh, how how it works because the cost of the hedge mm-hmm. is essentially the interest rate differential. So the cost of a hedge. So if we buy, for example, because European interest rates are so much lower, like you and Professor Siegel were speaking of, European rates are so much lower than the U.S. So to hedge, you buy a European asset and you want to hedge the currency, requires you to sell a low-yielding currency and buy a higher-yielding one. In effect, you can get paid to put on the hedge. That is those forward points 
work in your favor. So there's some difference between you know uh, low low interest rate currencies and the higher interest rate currencies. That argues for even more about kind of some a little bit uh, tactical play. Yes. Yeah, so that the the uh, so I'd say that when I think about the shape of the curve and the interest rate differential. So if you buy a ten year like the problem with the U.S. has a very flat curve now. And so what foreigners challenge in buying U.S. Treasuries is they buy the U.S. 10-year. Uh, Professor Siegel says around 170 or so today. And you hedge it by selling some short-term, uh, by, by hedging in the short-term against it. And so, uh, you might, so maybe it's a three-month forward. And your three-month interest rate might be giving away, say, three-quarters of the yield pickup. Mm-hmm. And so the flat. So ideally, what you'd want to do is find a country that has a. Uh, you want to hedge. It's cheaper to hedge in a country that has a steep curve. Got it. Yeah. So currency is definitely uh, something on my research uh, uh, radar as well. Um, you are listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel One Thirty Two. I'm your host Li Chen Ren. My guest is Mark Chandler, Chief Market Strategist at Ben and Nockburn. Global Forex. Hopefully, I pronounce the the company's name <laughs> correctly. Um, Mark, I think uh, following on our previous uh, questions, do you agree with Professor's view that you know the U.S. Fed should um really lower the interest rate since the ten year is so low right now? Yeah, I'm afraid that for me that that would mean that the Federal Reserve, we you know we 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 try to defend the Federal Reserve's independence from the president who is like, persistently sending tweets about what the Federal Reserve should do. But the Federal Reserve's independence should need to be protected from the market. Just because market participants take down a yield because of what maybe perhaps partly what's going on in Europe or Japan, that shouldn't dictate the Fed's policy. And I tell you what, I really worry about this idea that I think the professor subscribes to as well. It makes it sound like the Federal Reserve is a murderer. It kills recovery. <laughs> they kill the economy. And I just don't. I just don't think that's happened in my lifetime. Well, it's sort of my adult lifetime, I should say. The last three crises we've had in the U.S. the Great Financial Crisis, the tech bubble, the savings and loan crisis. These were not caused by two types of Fed policy, but the opposite. And so, what concerns me is that with unemployment near a generation low, with the stock market near record highs, with real interest rates below zero, ten years into a business expansion. That if we were to let co- cut rates so aggressively, so quickly, it would only fuel some kind of financial crisis. So I cannot see exactly where it will be, of course. I know people talk about the collateralized loan obligations. They talk about the triple B corporate bonds. A lot of places, in my experience, it often comes where we don't expect it. Yeah, so um, I think uh, you, you're completely right. You know, people... Fed does not want to shoulder the burden of the you know win and lose of the economy because it's it, it, it is affected by so much other things happening that Fed has very little control. Um, but I do want to follow up on this with all these currency moves from central banks, um, and including these negative uh, interest rates, um, you know, in Europe. Will all these help global growth? We have a guest last week believing that local rates and quantity easing won't help growth. Yeah, that's good. That's a good question, I think, because it's, uh, uh, it's sort of like, well, if we, even if we succeed. So I know uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, thinking about what a central bank may do, uh, going down negative interest rates, and you say, well, it's a, there's, a, there's a cost to be paid for this, but maybe if it's effective, 
uh, castor oil might not taste very good, but it might settle your stomach. But I wonder, uh, I wonder if the problem now is if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Yeah. For various reasons, in many countries, including those countries that seem to have the latitude, like Germany, to use fiscal policy, are reluctant to do so. In the U.S., we went from an expanding fiscal policy last year to a tightening fiscal policy this year, partly because of the tax cut, the tax hikes represented by the by the tariffs. And so I, I think that uh, I would prefer uh, taking some of the burden off monetary policy by using fiscal policy, especially you think about like Germany, where the whole yield curve is below zero. Yes. They could borrow money and get paid to borrow the money. And so, uh, I, I, so that's what concerns me really is that, uh, is that the, well, the, will it work? I, I don't see how it really works, how it really boosts aggregate demand. And that's really the, the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. How to boost demand. Yeah, I and think. I just don't see how it happens. Yeah, I, I, I have. I think of in the U.S. Uh, it, it's very hard to imagine that you know negative yield across the curve to happen. Um, and I think people have you know people understand that the interest rate is one of the most important decision make in terms of growth, but it's not the only one. Um, Let's move to a little bit uh, in terms of China and uh, U.S. Things, you know, it's in the news so much. I mean, tariffs are going to hurt both U.S. and uh, Chinese economy. Is that a consensus in the U.S. already? I think that uh, the, the view is something like this, that because of the trade imbalance, that the tariffs that uh, counting the tariffs that uh, were recently announced to go into effect in September, that this was going to shave maybe one to one and a half percent off of the Chinese GDP, and it will shave about half as much off of the U.S. GDP. And so, is it a concern? But I think that this is where I think that uh, I, I, I sort of thought that I had agreed where Professor Siegel was going is that the Federal Reserve has to respond to shocks in the U.S. economy. One of those shocks, the biggest shock that the Federal Reserve sees, is coming from external uh, factors, which I think was a euphemism in the recent FOMC press conference uh, for U.S. trade policy. So in some ways, uh, because because of the trade policy, the disruption for the economy, the market is more convinced that the Federal Reserve will cut rates. And right now, looking at the Fed's funds future strip, the market seems to be pricing in two more cuts at least, and about halfway towards pricing in a third cut this year. And remember, there's only three meetings left. Yeah, so it it's something, it's going to be, you know, people say August is quiet, but this year has been really, um, you know, bombing everywhere. <laughs> um, let's move to a little bit on China. I think, uh, you know, this really set off as part of the chain is that China uh, China's exchange rate moved across the psychological point of seven. Um, China's exchange rate setting mechanisms uh, seemed very complicated. For our listeners, tell us why they should care about the People's Bank of China's fixing rate and why it matters. Yeah, sure. This is probably right now, and maybe even for this next week ahead of us, is probably the single most important data point. Here's what happens. At about 9.15 in New York time, East Coast time at night, China's markets begin to open, and the, the PBOC, the Chinese Central Bank, sets the midpoint of where the dollar RMB can trade. It is allowed to trade in a 2% band around that midpoint. And so setting the midpoint of this band sort of sets how far the dollar can move. 
the dollar can move 2% on either side, but most other currencies that China allows to trade against it are allowed to trade in a wider band. And so this 2% band is important because it, it tells you the limit that it can move. And so what we watch for is how does, the, the key question then becomes, how does the People's Bank of China set that midpoint? How do they set the fix or the reference rate? Well, they, they, there's a, a formula that the market's not fully uh, that doesn't, it's not fully quantifiable. That is, we know about where the dollar closed the previous day. We know where it's trading before 9.15 New York time, where it's trading in early Asia. And we also know where it's trading relative to this basket that the PBOC monitors it against. But there is another factor called counter-cyclical, which is this very subjective factor. And so the key is when, when to watch for the, for the fix is not so much where it is relative to the previous day. That's it, yeah. The important point is where it is relative to the, where the model say it should be. So typically, including today, uh, August 8th, when the, when the PBOC set the reference rate, it was actually, for the dollar, it was a little bit weaker mm-hmm. than the model suggested, which means that the central bank is sort of leaning against the wind or the tide or the pressure it is trying to slow down the depreciation of the RMB, which the amazing thing to me when I read all these news reports of it, how much has the RMB sold off this year? About 2.3%. 2.3%. This is a little bit less than the euro has weakened. This is about a third of what the South Korean won has weakened by. The Chinese have been very, I think, have been very restrained. Yeah, so that is what, actually that is why when the U.S. Treasury labeled China as a currency manipulator, I was actually personally more surprised than crossing the seven. Because crossing the seven, you know, we know China is hurting and then there is potential that, uh, you know, the central bank might have to move to to counter some of some of the currency, uh, the tariffs effect. But why is U.S., you know, laboring China? Because as you mentioned, you know, the renminbi has not weakened that much. Uh, and, and if China is considered a currency manipulator today, it really should be considered a currency manipulator in the last 10 years. Um, <laughs> yes. But I think that I think that there's this like, a, like I want to say there's like this shadow dance. I mean, I think everybody, and that by everybody I mean including the People's Bank of China, they realize that citing China as a currency manipulator is like a little boy in a sandbox calling another little boy a name. <laughs> and it's toothless. And because it was toothless, that allowed the PBOC to set the fixing the following day, not very aggressively. Because I think that this was a sign, because it's almost like a game of bridge, a game of card game where you're signaling to your to your adversary in this case, using using like uh, using almost hieroglyphic signals. It's the interesting signal. you you use this app because I I am glad it's not Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so I I do think there's this diplomatic thing going on. I think that uh, we that both sides are still. I, I sort of think of these as escalation ladders, and we are still in the early rungs. We're not really we're hurting each other a little bit. We're like slapping each other. There's a lot more things that can be done to really uh, hurt the other's interests. It's so far, we're not, we're, it's not accelerating. Um, so just a quick uh, comment. Uh, amid all of these going on, U.S.-China trade war, currency war, all the other central bank moves, 
How do you see U.S. dollar? Does do you see a kind of long cycle of depreciation coming, or what? What usually does the election have any impact on the dollar? You know, good question because this is uh, tomorrow, August ninth is the tenth、uh, anniversary of my, a book I wrote called "Making Sense of the Dollar," in which I anticipated a long-term dollar upwave. And now, in my work, I think that that dollar upwave that I forecasted ten years ago, it's over. Okay, so <laughs> three big reasons why. One is the policy mix. The U.S. has gone from、uh, a very supportive policy mix, expanding fiscal policy, tighter monetary policy, to its exact opposite. Secondly, I find in the last phase of a dollar's rally, the interest rate differentials move against it. If you look at Europe, the eurozone, so Germany, the UK, Japan,、uh-huh. two-year、yes. interest rate differential has been moving against the US. Thank you.、November. We'd love to talk more.、Um, we can find more insights of yours from your blog, Mark to Market. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132, and our podcast producer Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.